0: Jerry made it clear this is an extraordinary show and the music for it will be very important. He described to me a sound design problem. He wanted a catchy, recognizable, signature music theme that would play along with his comedy monologue but that would not interfere with the audio of his stand-up material. In the late 80s, theme music was you know, kind of generic. Sampling technology was in its infancy, and I was eager to be on the bleeding edge of that. Instead of using drums and percussion and trumpets or whatever, I tried to capture that quirky New York energy using digital samples of finger snaps, tongue, lip noises to accompany him. Kind of like this. And that became the voice, the sonic brand of Seinfeld.
1: Today, for the Sound and Marketing Podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Wolf. He wrote the theme song for the show Seinfeld. Game changer theme song, in my opinion. So, welcome to the show, Jonathan.
0: Thanks, Gina. Thanks for your kind words.
1: So, let's just kind of dig right in. Um, I have listened to several different recordings of you talking about how the show came about, how the theme came about, but I I would love for you to kind of delve into that and tell the story of of how you came up with this iconic sound that matched this iconic show.
0: My good buddy, comedian George Wallace, told me to expect a call from his buddy, Jerry Seinfeld. Yes, in real life, Jerry Seinfeld has a best friend named George. George. It's George Wallace. And in Jerry's first phone call to me, Jerry made it clear this is an extraordinary show and the music for it will be very important. They had already done a pilot for Seinfeld, or at the time it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles, and the composer did not hit the ball as hard as he should have. And so they were looking to change the music. So when Jerry called, he described to me a sound design problem. It wasn't so much a music thing. He envisioned the opening credits of his show to center on Jerry performing stand-up comedy relating to the storyline of the episode. He wanted a catchy, recognizable, signature music theme that would play along with his comedy monologue, but that would not interfere with the audio of his stand-up material. Now, Gina, in the late 80s, Theme music was you know kind of generic. There was a lot of sassy saxophones and a lot of melodies and silly lyrics and guilty. I, I created a lot of that kind of music, but I knew it wasn't gonna work in this case. That combined with my adopted philosophy about that time of getting out of the pile. You know, there's so many composers in L.A., and they're all so good, and this is like a pile of us. And if you went into anybody's office, at the time, people had demo cassettes and demo CDs, and they'd be in these offices in piles, and it represented piles of people. And so I decided, I got to get out of these piles. And one of these piles was a creative pile that I just described. Sampling technology was in its infancy And I was eager to be on the bleeding edge of that. So I had this phone call from Jerry Seinfeld. It was not a big job. They only had four episodes, four episodes. My entire career, I never heard of a show only having four episodes. That's not an order, that's an insult. So I I watched some of his comedy material and noticed that Jerry's delivery has a unique funny rhythm to it. The pacing of his words, phrases, inflections. He has a musical quality. And I based the rhythm of the Seinfeld theme on the rhythms of his speech patterns. You know how a good rapper has certain rhythms in the speech pattern? So does Jerry. Jerry's voice became the melody of the theme. And I built the rest of the music around him. Instead of using drums and percussion and trumpets or whatever, I tried to capture that quirky New York energy using digital samples of finger snaps, tongue lip noises to accompany him kind of like this organic nature of these sounds helps them to blend well with the human nature of jerry's speaking voice i wanted it to be homogenous as if the music was just part of his performance the prominent baseline of the seinfeld theme in theory Its principles are in an audio range that do not compete with his human voice. Since his stand-up comedy was going to be different each week, his melody each week would be a variation on the theme. You know, his voice, the jokes he tells would be different. So the theme had to be adapted each week to fit his routine. I architected the music to be manipulatable in a modular fashion to match the timing of Jerry's lines. The Seinfeld music components, those elements, remained basically the same from week to week, but since the monologues were always different, each week, his human voice melody was like a variation that I had to accompany. Now, after a few seasons, we abandoned the opening and closing monologues to give more time for the episodes, but I was still able to use that quirky Seinfeld music And it was still recognizable as Seinfeld, even though we didn't have monologues anymore. The bass sound itself, in the late 80s, slap bass had not yet achieved celebrity status as a solo instrument. It was buried in funk music. I brought it forward, put it on the table, illuminated it, and made it a solo instrument. And that became the voice, the sonic brand of Seinfeld.
1: I think that that's the that's the really brilliant part was that you came up with a theme, but the theme was altered every episode and and it came and recurred in between like changing scenes. I just I think that that right there is the heart of the idea of creating a sonic brand foundation. And once you have that, as long as you keep those elements somewhere in the midst of things, you have so much freedom to explore and that sound can just take a life of its own. And it really truly becomes, I think, a character in the show.
0: Well, thank you. If it's done right and given enough time to speak its voice, a good thing will do that. And I used that notion of sonic branding as a marketing tool for myself to get out of other piles. I was not always the best composer in the room. There were times when I was competing for an assignment with composers who I considered my superiors. So I did not want to compete just simply based on our musical superpowers. You know, yeah, you have superpowers, I have superpowers. How am I going to get this job instead of you? And sometimes this would work. I would tell the exec producer who was interviewing me that, you know, I see you're looking at these other folks and they're excellent composers. If you just want good music, Hire one of them, you'll be happy. I do something completely different. I will create for you a sonic brand, an earworm, so unique that it will instantly identify your show like a signature. People from the other room with their head in the refrigerator will hear this sound and a Pavlovian response will be, ooh, let's watch that.
1: No, I agree. And you don't have to be looking at the TV. You could draw somebody in from the kitchen. They're making a sandwich and they don't know what they're going to watch next, but then they hear that Seinfeld theme. They know exactly what it is and they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to tune in or I'm not going to tune in, but it will bring them to the device that the that the company, the the production company wants you to go to." It's it's a great form of marketing.
0: You and your listeners are smart. So you know that what I just did, that little drama log I just did, did, you know, their style and their substance. There was no substance there. (laughs) It was all shallow, plastic, artificial. But in that moment, Gina, in that nanosecond, I had successfully separated myself from the others. And maybe there's five people being considered. I'm one of them. At that point, it's me or the others. So now I've got a 50% chance instead of 20% that I'd have if if it was equally divided. So that was one trick that I would use. I, like I said, I was not always the best composer, but I knew how to close a the deal. Theme music, like you mentioned, it serves a number of functional and practical roles in the success of a TV show. And if you want, we can talk about
1: that. Well, I did want to ask you, because um, you made made a mention about that the only uh, episodes that were picked up were four episodes, which is unheard <laughs> of.
0: That's yeah, a joke.
1: <laughs> but I, I agree with you. I live, I live in the LA area. That is pretty strange that um, they would only be picked up for four episodes, and it would just like slowly stagger into more episodes. What made you take the job in the first place? Was it because you're like, here's an opportunity for me to, you know, put myself apart from all the other composers that are out there? Was there something about Jerry that was interesting to you? What was the draw? If it was only four episodes, what was the draw?
0: Uh, George Wallace and I are really good friends. And I knew about his best friend, Jerry, for for a long time. We had just never met. But, you know, G- George put it to me like, my friend's in trouble, the music's not working. Can you help him out? So it was you know, it was a job. I got paid for it and I was happy to have the job. And, uh, you know, obviously now I'm really happy to have had the job. But At the time, it was not a great job. I was doing okay. I had a couple of hit shows on the air already. I was doing every week, married with children and who's the boss. So I didn't really need you know, a show that the network showed such little faith in that they only ordered four. So I didn't really need this job, but I was happy to do it. Any friend of George is a friend of mine, and he seemed like a nice enough guy. He called me on a Saturday, and I pitched him the idea that, look, we need to really treat your voice with a lot of respect. Otherwise, if you have a really melodic theme, it's a recipe for an audio conflict. And he listened intelligently to that. And he said, Well, how's that work? So, well, come on over. I'm alone. I'm here at my office. Come on over. We'll, we'll, I'll work this up. You can watch me. And he did. And he's, you know, he's a really nice guy who's he hung around. The girlfriend brought us burritos and uh, that was how I created the Seinfeld theme with him. They're going just kind of in amazement about that whole sampling thing and the lips and the finger snaps. And when I first mentioned to him about lips and tongue noises, he just said, can we do that? Is that legal? Is that music? <laughs> like, well, will find out. So that is why I really, really wanted to take this job is because of the relationship I had and still have with George Wallace.
1: I've also heard the story about how Larry David almost made you leave the room when uh, they were oh, yeah, he threw me out of a meeting. He threw you out of a meeting because he, it seemed he believed in the, the theme song even more than you did at that point. What do you think sold Larry David? By the way, your impression of Larry David is awesome. Um, but what <laughs> what was it that you think just sold Larry? He's like, this is it. We can't do anything else. What was it?
0: Larry does not like to be told what to do. That's more of the truth than that he was in love with the music. He there was a long list. In the and I'll tell the story.
1: First of all, <laughs> yes, please do.
0: <laughs> Larry wasn't even there when I created the theme. Jerry was there, and Jerry's happy with it. And I put it up against his comedy video that he had from an HBO special. And it worked pretty well. And Jerry called Larry on the phone and just held the phone up to the, in the air so he could hear it on the speakers. And Jerry said, I really like this. What do you think, Larry? And Larry said, yeah, 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 that, sound, that sounds funny. I like that. That was the entire approval process hmm. until we got picked up for another season, season two I think it was, that Warren Littlefield had some notes. He was head of NBC at the time. By the way, I love Warren, he's great. I did 17 series with Warren, oh he and I get along fine, this is not bad about Warren, he's just doing his job. And I was invited to this meeting where Warren was gonna give his notes that if you want a season two, this is what you're gonna to have to change. And the reason I was invited is because they were given a heads up that music was on the list. Warren, again, a smart guy, articulate, intelligent, very successful, and he knows what he's doing. Said, what is this music? Is is it what are those instruments? Could we not afford real music? It's it's weird, it's distracting, it's annoying. When he said the word annoying, Larry's eyes lit up. And he said, What? It's annoying, really. And that's when he decided he was gonna defend it. I said to Larry, and our boss was Glenn Padnick who was head of TV for Castle Rock. And I just, we huddled with me and Larry and Glenn, and I said, look guys, I'll change the music. It's not a big deal for me. I'm no, no offense here, I, I, I just want the show to get picked up. You know, give me a couple hours. And Larry was so mad at me that I would even consider caving in to this, this request. He just started you know, yelling at me and pointing at the door. Get out! You're done here! Get out! And I looked at Glenn, and Glenn just kind of shrugged and said, Look, Larry, if you feel strongly about this, I'll back you up. I'll defend it. He said, Well, first, Wolf, you get out! And he threw me out of the meeting. <laughs> and the meeting, you know, ended with the music stayed in the picture. And by the way, that long list of notes, I saw the list. I don't think Larry ended up changing any of it. I mean, there's casting issues and storyline issues and wardrobe and stuff. I don't think he changed anything. So it wasn't so much that he loved the music. He just didn't like being told to change stuff.
1: The fact that the network had so little faith in this show and that there was only four episodes, I wonder if this gave you – and. Everyone involved, really, like story-wise, musically, everything gave you guys a freedom to try something that wasn't explored because no one was really telling you, okay, well, we have to, you know, cross this T and dot this I. And you were able to explore.
0: What you just said is absolutely correct. They really weren't paying that close attention to us. And Larry was able to make the show the way Larry wanted. Mm -hmm. And I was able to make the music the way I wanted And it all worked pretty well, mostly because we were not a hit show and they had other things to do. There were people at NBC who believed in the show. There were individuals who did. Warren was one of them. Stu was one of them. Uh, But in general, it didn't test well. It had no numbers. It had no viewers. It was weird. They weren't sure what to do with it. Where do we, what kind of a time slot do we find with this? Because at the time, sitcoms were... Not like this. They were not conversational and you know, is as intricate as Seinfeld was. So yes, you hit on something important. It was a Camelot era of being able to have certain freedoms. And for me, that meant, you know, being able to be weird and quirky. And as the show went forward, the bass evolved more nasal, more angular, more wacky, more 12-tone. The basic Seinfeld. Baseline, it's just a one chord or a four chord. It's so sophomoric and so simple that you know any nine-year-old can play it. And as it's that simple, it does not really require meter to hold water. It could stop and start to make allowances for Jerry's jokes. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I was able to forget everything I learned about composition from the time I was seven and create this very simple theme. And sometimes that works.
1: That's not always the case, though. You learn the rules so that you can break them.
0: <laughs> if it, you have to really, really know the rules before you break <laughs> yes, them. I hear, all, you hear <laughs> folks all the time trying to you know, be new and avant-garde, but you have to understand how human ears work and how the – at the time, broadcast transmissions had – each network had unique algorithms for its compression that they used. Oh, so I had to get used to, and I had, I had shows on every network. I had to mix differently, mix defensively, so it would still sound good on each of the networks. And I made friends with those engineers that came up with the compression schemes so that I would know how to do it. For example, that bass, when you hear it in reruns on TV, it, it slaps out, smacks in between the forehead. It sounds louder than the dialogue because I use certain selective phase manipulations in it. And for, before you do that, you have to know the rules. Otherwise, y- you might run into phase cancellations.
1: Oh, that sounds exhausting, the different and qualifications. It's okay. For I was,
0: I'm a nerd, and I was <laughs> to, I'm assuming you are too. Uh-huh. But enable enabled me to, to at least do something unique for that theme. And themes, I, I always philosophically thought that themes were not given the gravitas. That they should. I should point out. I'm fully retired. I have no dog in this fight anymore. I'm not trying to convince anybody to pay me more money. You know, theme music, among other things, is a first impression sales tool, to help pitch a new show to an audience. Sometimes it's important to the show's identity and and helps tell the story. It's a theme like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which mm. is not one of mine. But it tells the story and puts you there, into the, into the story of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Theme has entertainment value as a presentation tool. Just like in the theater, the voice booming voice says, ladies and gentlemen. And as the theater curtain rises before the performance, to prepare the audience for an entertainment experience, a TV theme announces each episode. It heightens your sense of anticipation and draws you into that mind space you visit while watching the show. A TV theme sometimes identifies a location or historic period of, of the show. For example, my theme for Saved by the Bell, The College Years, helped us transition the lives of those characters from high school into college. And often the theme not only reflects the show's sensibilities, but also welcomes the audience by bridging the gap between the show's set and the viewer's living room. Kind of like, here's another theme. I did not write kind of like the cheers theme does for each episode so beautifully. It just welcomes you into that bar. You know, one of my first themes that I really noticed and loved and paid attention to when I was young was welcome back Cotter where John Sebastian actually used the words welcome in it. And it made you want to sit in that classroom. So in that way, TV themes become woven into the fabric of our personal experiences, like the soundtrack of our lives. And familiar themes can also serve as pop cultural touchstones, marking times and places in our lives. For me, those lifeline markers, besides the one I just mentioned, include like Mission Impossible and Pink Panther, Sanford and Son, Dragnet, Peter Gunn, Beverly Hillbillies. As I say these words, people of a certain age are hearing that music and having warm fuzzies. Yes. For younger people, maybe for my kid's age, it might be the Friends theme song. Again, which I did not write. People hold these warm fuzzy connections to TV themes in their memories. It's the reason why you get some rock bands recording covers.
1: I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Jonathan Wolff. I believe that there is a very valuable lesson to be learned with the marketing of a show or a movie in comparison to marketing a brand, hence this episode. I'm a huge fan of Jonathan's work, and what he did on Seinfeld is just too perfect of an example to skip. Audio is powerful, as I've stated time and time again, and we should hold value in what our brand sounds like. Remember, we all make sounds, let's make them on purpose. For more of the Sound and Marketing Podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. For inquiries on producing and developing your own podcast, or for inquiries on Sonic Branding and Sonic Branding consultation availabilities, you can find me at Dreamer Productions. That's D-R-E-A-M-R productions.com, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also email me at Gina, j e a n n a at dreamerproductions.com all links will be provided in the show notes this episode was produced by dreamer productions and hosted written and edited by me gina isham let's make this world of sound more intriguing more unique and more and more on brand